Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, as former controller Michael Grade weighs into the debate, how long has Channel 4 got before it's privatised and how could it thrive? ITV boss Adam Crozier thinks he can run the BBC better than the current lot by merging Radio 4 and 5 Live. Adam Crazier, more like. Plus, Yentob goes, TV ad revenue goes through the roof, and in the media quiz we tackle the industry's corrections and clarifications. That's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me this Friday at the Hospital Club is the Managing Director of TV Indie Lemonade Money and at least my fifth favourite Faraz, it's Faraz Osman. Hello. Hey. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, Faraz, not only are you back, but it's back. Okay, what is it? It's on the internet and you put oh, it serious? in your ears. There yes, we go. I was I wondering how many clues. I my wife this morning, kind of going, <laughs> OMG, she sent me an amazing GIF emoji off the back of it. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet. In fact, I'm I'm a little bit tense. I kind of want to finish this so I can go and find out what's going on. It's, um, do you think it's going have you to heard be? It yet? I haven't heard it yet. Do you think it's going to be as big news as the first series? No, of course not. What is really interesting is the fact that there's not been more serialised podcasts. So I thought that there will be kind of a real glut of them. But the only other one that I'm listening to is my dad wrote a porno which is hilarious um, and uh, you know without wanting to over intellectualise it is, is a serialised podcast mm. and uh, so you kind of look forward to knowing the next bit of the story each week I think there's probably been a glut of them commissioned and people just haven't downloaded them at quite the same uh, speed but yes if we somehow have just alerted you to the fact that the second series of Serial is now live and you feel that tension that you have to press pause on the media pod right now and and chug back 15 hours of uh, was he a killer or not, feel free, uh, and then come back afterwards, because I know what it's like. Relieve yourself first. Also joining us in the hospital club is broadcast consultant par excellence, Paul Robinson. Hi, Ollie. Hello. Uh, I understand you took an A380 today, the double-decker. I did, I did, yes, Um, from Singapore. I was at uh, ATF, which is the Asian television market. Fascinating, Uh, growing, uh, more and more formats coming out of Japan and China, you know, the whole Asian business is just absolutely booming. Really? Because you yes. don't hear a lot about that, do you? You do not. Uh, and, of course, for a, a British company, it's a, a great place to go and sell. So, you know, we're selling stuff to uh, the Asian broadcasters. And, of course, there aren't very many of us there. I mean, there are a few friends I bumped into, but not many. Uh, so um, if you haven't been before, I suggest next December you get on a plane to Singapore and spend some very nice time at Marina Bay Sands. You'll probably make a bit of money. 
And you have a great time. And you have a great time. I, I guess maybe for British broadcasters, it, it just feels less complicated to take a Dutch format or an Israeli format or a Canadian format than it does to say, oh, let's take the latest thing that's big in Hong Kong. Well, it depends whether it works for your audience and whether you want something that's different and hasn't been seen before. I mean, you know, the point is that uh, doing business there is really easy. I mean, Singapore, everybody speaks amazing English, so it's not a problem. And was there good entertainment on the plane? I watched about two and a half movies and fell asleep. What, what airline were you on? Uh, I was on BA. Well, you could listen to Ask Me This on BA. Pardon? I could have done. But Pardon? I what? <laughs> it's there. It's on the comedy podcast channel. I could have done, but didn't. Mm. I'm just being honest. No, no, no. Well, fine. So long as you were aware of the option, I'm sure they announced it on the tannoy. Uh, right. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah, some proper yeah, yeah. media news. They've only recently made some shiny new idents, but now Channel 4 might be changing entirely from a state-owned, commercially funded operation to an entirely privatised broadcaster with shareholders and an expectation of profit. Uh, This week, former controller Lord Grade weighed in, saying it would be a good thing for the channel uh, and that it could become a media powerhouse, despite the fact that, of course, when he ran Channel 4, he used to campaign against this very thing. Uh, Meanwhile, David Abram gave an interview to Broadcast in which he sounded torn between his role as chief executive of Channel 4 and being a champion for the channel as a publicly owned body. It kind of all makes my head hurt, this, uh, Faraz, Channel 4 privatisation. It's it's the kind of thing people throw around as a term, and I I struggle to actually understand what the options are. If you wanted it to stay distinctive, then it's never going to make loads of money for a commercial entity, and if they took it, then they'd end up dumbing it down, wouldn't they, inevitably? I think that part of the problem is people think when, when you have this debate people think that Channel 4 are getting licence fee money which they're obviously not it's, it's a quite a complicated model um, to kind of explain off, on, on, off the cuff I think that when you have a commercially funded publicly owned broadcaster it, you know the distinctiveness question has changed significantly from when Channel 4 first started you had four channels and, and kind of being distinctive was, was an important thing now actually being distinctive you know when you look at things like Vice and Days to Confused and you know other broadcasters and and brands around the world being distinctive is, has helped get you market share so so there is a there is a kind of private commercial incentive to being distinctive now which is why channel 4 continues to be successful but i, I think that there's a um, you know this idea is in itself lunacy i don't think anybody's calling for channel 4 to be privatized apart from the government who want a bit of a cash windfall but i think that what we do need to talk about now is is what the public service value of channel 4 is and this kind of distinctiveness thing is is banded around a lot and obviously channel 4 do a great job Water documentaries, but we now have no children's programming on Channel 4 whatsoever. Um, any programming for people under the age of 25 is a bit of a question mark, and their, their reach continues to decline in that space, other than their acquisitions in the American space. And I, I think it will be useful for Channel 4 to be put under a bit more pressure to figure out you know, why this is state funded and, and what value it is giving to to its viewers beyond just uh, you know beyond just the the standard interesting documentaries and and gritty dramas but but that doesn't the point remain Paul that that no private organization running Channel 4 would keep Channel 4 news like it is for example an hour a night which basically has no one watching but is very valuable you know no no private company is going to have that many documentaries on after episodes of a reality format I think you have to decide what you want and we should remember that Channel 4 was uh, dreamed up over 30 years ago uh, in a market when there were currently three channels and it was the fourth channel there was no sky there was no cable there was nothing else 
Um, and it was designed to do two things. It's designed to uh, increase choice, but particularly to stimulate the independent sector and also to be this publisher broadcaster so other people had access to the airways. Um, and the government of the day did not want to allocate licence fees for our sales, so the decision was made to uh, make it advertising-funded. Now, despite what you say, an advertising-funded public broadcaster is completely a common model. We have ITV in the UK, and most of the public broadcasters around the world are funded via advertising. Advertising. We'll talk about ABC in Australia later, and that again is an ad-funded model plus government funding. So it's a very usual model to have a public broadcaster, a public service broadcaster, funded via advertising. Nothing funny about that. What is funny about it is that Channel 4 has changed from what it was, and maybe now isn't quite sure what it is or what it should be. As you were saying, most of its top-rated programmes are actually acquisitions, US acquisitions. And in prime time, most of the content is US content. Uh, it does do some great stuff, dispatches and so on, amazing, great news, yes. Um, but there's no reason to say that couldn't those things couldn't necessarily survive in a public broadcaster because it would actually be in their commercial interest to do so. In terms of um, the government making a windfall, I'm not sure that's the issue. The issue is it's probably a little bit anachronistic now for Channel 4 to continue doing what it does, um, spending a huge amount acquiring US content and be government-owned. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's also in a situation where because it's advertising-funded and because it therefore depends on ratings, its share is declining. Even if you add together all of the additional channels it's launched over previous past years, its total share is declining and will continue to decline. So Channel 4 in the existing model will just face a slow and lingering death. So I think the question is, what do you want Channel 4 to be and should you rethink the model? And I think rethinking the model is entirely the right thing. But where you start is, what do you want Channel 4 to do? I, I think the thing for me is, as running an independent production company, is, is that you know, I think we're really blessed in the UK to have that polarity of different models that, that allow you to think differently in, into how you come up with ideas and, and hopefully get ideas commissioned along the way. And I think it's really important to continue to encourage that. And, and what I worry about is that once you have a similar model as Channel 5 and, uh, and ITV does, and that... that almost diminishes choice so I think Sky is a subscription model and, and that is a good thing because that has its own value they have you know they do very lots of very big ticket items um, the BBC is obviously a complete license fee model public service broadcast and I think that should continue and I think having Channel 4 as this kind of third way is, is actually a really decent thing and I, I would say as well is that Channel 4 have done a really interesting job of you know, I, I get very angry, and the people that we work with get very angry when Channel 4 make a bad commissioning decision, much more so than when Channel 5 do it or when Sky do it or even when the BBC does it, because it feels like it belongs to the audience in a way that um, that is important to independent producers and, and also um, uh, the people that end up watching the programmes as well. And I, I, would, I would feel that if you turn it into a completely public company, sorry, a completely private company, you start to chip away at that um, that level of of ownership that, that people have about it and I don't think that that's just a sentimental thing I, I genuinely think that that helps creativity and it helps people to, to push the boundaries and, you know things like TFI Friday coming back has, has frustrated a lot of people because you want to see more of that anarchic sensibilities from a new generation and a new set of brands and, and what I worry about is that decisions like TFI and, and as you say American acquisitions they become the norm for a channel like Channel 4 because they're, they're gunning to make profit and, and want to make sure they have those big branded hits 
out of the gate above and beyond creating new content. I sort of agree with all of that actually. I mean the only thing I disagree with is about the funding model because I think you're absolutely right that you know whilst it's nice that Evans is back doing Tier 5 Friday, so much better to have a new version of that with a new young team and also I think it's critical that companies like yours and others are uh, encouraged and feel they have a place to do things which are experimental, different, unique, you know, distinctive. Absolutely. And if, if Channel 4 couldn't do that, that would be a loss to British production. But I don't think that means it can't be private. I don't think it's about whether it's private or public. It's about what it's meant to be doing, what you want it to do. Because you can fund it. You could certainly fund it commercially and you could build into that brief in the way ITV has built into its brief. It has to do certain things at certain times. Okay, final point about um, something David Abrams said actually in this interview is he said something, it was a bit codified, but he said something like, I think it's time that, that producers started having a view on this situation or something like that it was quite clear that he was kind of saying he'd welcome indies to get together and make a big fuss about this like they have about the bbc and the government doing their charter review into that for us do you think in a sense there is um a burden on all of these indies to say a lot of us justify our existence on the fact that channel 4 continues to use us that there's a re- the government should be aware that if they make channel 4 private then companies like ours might not be able to exist well, A, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I, I, you know, we have done some work for Channel 4, but they aren't the reason we're still alive today. But we, some companies do exist on a couple of commissions, don't they? Yeah, they do exist on a couple of commissions. And, and there's hundreds of, of indies now, basically because of Channel 4's role. Well, I mean, Channel, the, the indie sector exists because of Channel 4. I, I, I think it would be very difficult for anybody to argue that. You know, the, the, the indie community exploded once Channel 4 came on the scene, before it was just controlled by the BBC and ITV. And it's one of the reasons why we have some of the greatest formats coming out of the UK as those companies have have continued to grow they've done a really interesting job post Big Brother of steadying the ship this privatisation thing I think has caught them very much by surprise but the reason it's it's come up is because all of the public service stuff that Channel 4 was known for and that kind of anarchic irreverent nature that Channel 4 used to be about I feel has slightly gone away and and that's why this conversation is being had and, and let's let's be completely honest I, you know and I'm sure that David and Jay and, and all of the guys at Channel 4 would argue the other way but it does feel to me like when it comes to the primetime stuff when it comes to the stuff that actually generates revenue and continues to build brands things like Gogglebox things like The Jump they're all coming from big big indies whereas the smaller indies are, are almost kind of given these short form places or you know they've created Channel 4 Shorts and, and that they're looking to, to commission a lot of people in that space but they're, they're very small budgets they're very you know they're not companies you know they're not budgets that you can help grow a company out of there's a feeling that from i feel from the indie community is that well you know give us give us a punt at you know we, we mentioned tfi friday that's that's i think i feel it's a really good example there's no reason why i mean i would say this bit running a young independent production company but there's no reason why that brief can't be opened up to people who who haven't done that space before in a classic Channel 4 way, where it almost used to be management consultants kind of going, we need to fill this slot, tell us what we should do. It's flipped now, where it's commissioners going, we want you to make this. And, you know, they'll go to the bigger indies where the relationships exist, and they have an unlimited resource of development team, which almost kind of shuts out smaller indies as a result. So so there's a lot of work that has to kind of be done to, to retrofit all of that as well. You know, yes, they've steadied the ship. Yes, the, the ratings have, have kind of stabilised. Yes, they're winning awards. But are they actually encouraging the indie market in a way that they should be? I think that is quite questionable. OK, so it might actually be a bit of a tough ask to get all of these indies to get too upset about this going on at Channel 4. Uh, whilst we were talking about Jay Hunt, actually, briefly, and she's the current controller of Channel 4, 
before. Uh, she's now been linked to a job in Australia. What's what's that about? Again, that she's been linked to this job a couple of times now, I think. But um, this is at ABC. This is at ABC. Yeah. So I mean, it wouldn't surprise me um, if if she did move on. I, I I think kind of going back to my earlier point of the fact that the the ship has been steadied, and there were lots of question marks when she came in, and there was lots of criticism, and and it, that, that seems to have kind of gone away now. They have some hits. The the ratings are are stabilised, and and this is the next big question that has to be answered it doesn't surprise me that there may be a way of solving that is, is to kind of have a bit of a, a reshuffle to see if there's somebody else out there that wants to tackle that problem similar to how you know Danny Cohen is moving on before licensory re- renegotiation um, that's coming up as well so I, I think that it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if she did decide that this was the right time for her to go I guess she'll be bowing out on a high and a comparable gig Paul ABC it's a bigger gig for her I mean bigger budget ABC Australia bigger budget than Channel 4 ABC have got four channels um, and cl- plus their news channel Channel they've 4 really will tell you they've got four channels as well of course yeah but, okay. <laughs> but uh, playing music videos ABC doesn't count I agree ABC have got four proper channels <laughs> uh, big investment in kids you know, kids and news have been their, their big investments uh, they want to be the BBC they have ambitions like the BBC you know, they are an example of a government funded uh, broadcaster topped up by advertising uh, and their big challenge is, unlike the BBC, which has a licence fee, they are squeezed by the government if they don't do what the government likes. That is a challenge to the ABC. Um, and they have ambitions like the BBC, but of course Australia is a much smaller country, 40% the size of the UK. Uh, so they've never got enough money. So they're always struggling to do things. So someone like Jay, who's worked at Channel 4, who's got you know the creative background, understands budgets, understands the UK market, I think would be very attractive to the ABC and she could probably do a very good job there. I've actually just come back from Australia after doing a little bit of work out there and um, and this is purely anecdotally and I don't have any evidence or statistics to back this up but, but I was almost shocked by the lack of diversity compared to the actual people that, I mean I was in Sydney and, and Sydney seems to be a very diverse place, there's lots of people from, from Asia and East Asia that, that have uh, moved over there and settled over there and their television really doesn't feel like it's reflective of of the population that's out there is uh, out there at the moment and uh, I, I think Jay coming from Channel 4 um, with that remit to, to celebrate diversity it would be nice to see if that has a, a positive impact on that network as a result yeah, interesting okay right let's talk about ads because uh, Christmas is around the corner I don't know if you noticed uh, and this Christmas we'll see a record amount spent on television advertising according to research by Zenith Optimedia uh, Paul 310 million pounds being spent just this month in, in December how good is that? Put that in perspective for us. Well, um, it's a significant increase on uh, year on year. And I think the question you have to ask is why? What's interesting, of course, is that retail patterns have fundamentally changed. Uh, Black Friday being the, the single biggest change. And, of course, what's happened in the past is that the, what was normally the biggest retail week of the year was the week immediately prior to Christmas. So in terms of this podcast, next week would be the biggest week. It has no longer been the biggest week in the last few uh, years and Black Friday has, has changed all that and you have you know, a number of retailers saying actually well we would rather not be in Black Friday but we have to because everybody else is so I think this is about actually trying to really stimulate full price sales just prior to Christmas uh, and advertising is being used to do that and of course TV advertising is the most powerful way of advertising be interesting to see if it works if it does um, I think it could be a sustained uh, growth if it doesn't it could be a blip people are going to be surprised to hear you say that TV advertising is the most powerful 
form of advertising. Digital ads are on the rise, aren't they? Digital is more focused and more targeted, but it's also more expensive in terms of reaching mass people. And I know you're a radio guy, but TV is the most powerful advertising medium. There's no question about that. That's beyond dispute. But we're going to see digital overtake uh, TV eventually. 2017, they reckon. Well, digital advertising is, I would argue, and again, this is anecdotally, but I would argue digital advertising is far more irritating than television advertising. And, and I have always wondered about what that does for people's brands. And, uh, you know, when you get these pop-up ads, when you get these pre-rolls in particular um, around video, they are incredibly frustrating to people trying to engage with content. You know, when you have some online services and you have to watch three 30-second adverts before you can actually get to your content, that is something that's a, that's a poor negative experience. Um, whereas with television, you know, there is a uh, an adopted language that has been learned over a, a number of generations which allows people to watch a bit of their content take a break see some adverts and and it's it's i feel it's more accepted and and the celebration of good advertising on television the john lewis advert that everyone always talks about every year is part of that i think very few people talk about an amazing online advert that's a pre-roll to a youtube video what's particularly interesting is what youtube have done around youtube red and, and in, in addition to that, the fact that Facebook and, and YouTube have started to, and Google and, and all of these digital brands are advertising on television. I mean, for me, that says something really significant about what, what these brands have made an obscene amount of money from an advertising model feel about television um, when it comes to breaking through with, with their own brand awareness. Um, and I think, I think YouTube Red is, is, is incredibly interesting because it's saying... It's a, an explain almost, what YouTube Red is for sorry, those Sorry, so YouTube, YouTube Red is, is a new... Um, subscription service where you can pay a monthly subscription to YouTube to not watch any advertising um, and it's come off the back of the popularity of, of ad blockers where people are, are installing plugins to to avoid advertising um, and uh, some broadcasters in this country have then blocked users who use ad blockers from watching any of their content as a result so there's this weird online war between consumers trying to avoid advertising online and, and broadcasters who are saying that we need it to survive but you would you know we have Sky Plus and we have have kind of PVRs that allow you to skip adverts and and fast forward through them, but you're still seeing the brands. You're still kind of fast forwarding them at, at 30 plus speed, but people kind of accept it, and and I think that's allowed brands to continue to to use television to to thrive. And I I think that this is where television becomes really powerful, and it's why Netflix and iPlayer have been so successful because they don't have any advertising whatsoever. It means that you can get to your content straight away. There's there's a real value in in the fact that if you want to advertise, TV is still the best place for you to do that. Except I just did wonder, Paul, whether some of the secret behind these rising figures in TV ads is actually to do with digital because people make video campaigns that they're going to put up on YouTube and there's a symbiosis between the two if it's a well-constructed campaign. Well, as you were saying, you know, they've also got all these new um, brand categories, you know, uh, all the digital brands advertising on television, so they're effectively new to TV bringing in more money. But, you know, I agree with uh, what you say, and that is that if you want to build a brand, you can't do that online. Building a brand is about an emotional connection. It's about a combination of you know, great creative uh, music, images, emotion. It's an emotional thing, and you can do that really well on television. Much less easy to do that on online, not least because you're in a different mood. You know, it's a different mindset. And the other point, I think, about online video is 
you shouldn't forget that um, online video is not just YouTube. You know, there's three models for paying for online video. It's a subscription, um, it's transactional, or it's uh, advertising. And advertising is only about a third of the total revenue uh, accrued to online video. See, people are choosing to either download to own um, or they're choosing to, uh, to rent via Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime or whatever, or, or they can have YouTube. And um, there's three different models. It's also interesting, um, not just YouTube Red, but the YouTube Kids app launched in the UK uh, three weeks ago. Um, and there's already been negative reaction to advertising uh, on pre-rolls on kids' programs from parents saying, I don't want my two-year-old watching an ad for an insurance company before they see Peppa Pig, because that's what's happening. Yeah, and actually in that particular example, um, briefly for us, but it is fascinating, uh, with the kids' app, this idea of brand integration, which people say is less irritating than the pre-roll video, that's very problematic when you're targeting children, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, brand integration is, is a model that I think will continue to grow, and I think it's, it's a useful model as well. I, I think that people... With, but if, it, but if it's useful for indoctrinating children, <laughs> then parents well, are going to yeah, be concerned. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think kids' television in particular is always always trickier. I, I think that kids' TV is is a very different, significantly different model to the rest of television. I, I think that the ability to, to make back-end revenue out of it and, and sell it worldwide, particularly with things like animation and things like Peppa Pig, if you get kids' TV right you can become very rich of secondary rights off the, off the back of it, which is why where, is where the value is there. Selling insurance adverts against Peppa Pig is, is a little bit silly. I, I think that what we will start seeing is brand endorsement or, or product endorsement within Peppa Pig for, for things that you can then end up going to Toys R Us and buying that are related to that, that programming. It feels like that's a bit dirty, but when you actually look at what things like Star Wars are doing, you know, they are creating product, they're creating films, mm. and the first thing that you saw out of that new Star Wars trailer was a toy that you could be buying for the last two months. Nobody knows what the character is with BB-8 but you can go and buy one and everybody wants one I don't know why but you just want one because it looks cool and they are showing that that is actually what works when it comes to that sort of place we did some work at Disney about this and in fact product placement works really well when there's strong engagement by consumers with the products. So with Star Wars, no one's unhappy about a Star Wars toy because they're going to love Star Wars, they're going to watch the movie, blah de blah Unless it's Jar Jar Binks. Well, OK, unless it's Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> we'll forget Jar Jar Binks. But if the movie's not so good or the content's not so engaging, parents are really unhappy about Pester Power, really unhappy about having a toy uh, rammed down their throat and being forced to buy it because the kid has asked for it because it's seen the advert or product placement in the programme. But if they love the show, they're quite happy to, to pay for it. Don't ram a toy down your throat, kids. It's dangerous. <laughs> it's very dangerous, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. 
I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. Shopify made it really easy for me to shift everything over and hit the ground running. I was able to migrate my products and all of my customer information over. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. Good morning, friends of the media podcast. I'm taking a punt here, but uh, it feels like a morning show this week. Uh, We'll get back to the media news in just a minute. But before we do, you've been hearing me blather on about supporting this show since September when we were at the radio festival. And since then, every single episode of this has been funded by you. My interview with David Schneider and David Levin, funded by you. Radar Analysis with Matt Deegan, funded by by you. Our carefully chosen pundits from across print and broadcast and online, their unguarded commentary, well it would be left unrecorded, undistributed, unheard were it not for you. Uh, And for that we thank you, our donors, and we encourage you to join them if you haven't bothered yet. If you value what we're doing here at the Media Podcast, if you think there should be an independent voice in this industry of vested interests, then please go to our secure website, themediapodcast.com choose a level of support either as a one-off or as a regular payment and you can even do it from your mobile pause the pod give generously and hopefully we'll see you next year okay back to the show time to tackle the other stories of the week first up itv their chief exec adam crozier was in front of the commons culture media and sports select committee on tuesday and he took the opportunity to discuss his broadcasters commitments to regional broadcasting i'm joking of course not uh, he discussed the bbc uh, Faraz, what did he say about auntie um you put me on the spot what did he say about auntie he said something about merging channels right about BBC Four and BBC Two and Five Live and Radio Four. Or yes, something he's, like that. he said. You know, why did they axe BBC Three? There are all sorts of savings they could make, and then outlined three or four completely mental ideas, <laughs> which those were two. But what did you make of his suggestions? Well, this was uh, Adam Crozier positioning himself, wasn't it? I mean, it was pretty transparent what he was doing. Um, I mean, in the BBC be, 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 clear, be clear, what was he doing? ITV have got their own challenges, and the more that uh, Crozier can put the BBC back into a distinctive box, the better ITV is going to do. So, of course, he's going to push uh, for the BBC to be, uh, you know, retreat its tanks off a number of lawns if he possibly can get them to reverse. Act uh, strictly come dancing was one of the things. Yeah, which is clearly um, <laughs> can you imagine? Cr- crazy. But, I mean, the, the question here is, do you want a BBC that's popular uh, with a range of programmes or do you want a BBC correcting market failure and clearly Adam Crozier would like the latter he's not going to get it but I don't blame him for trying his ideas were uh, rather rather poor I mean the, the BBC Three thing um, you have to say to some extent he has a point in the sense that if the BBC were to say hey we're more efficient now no one would ever believe them and the BBC have become more efficient could they become more efficient still yes they could but putting BBC Three online is not a crazy idea. Uh, it does save a bit of money, not a lot, but the real budget is obviously in the commissioning. You know, it's a way of flagging up, we have got problems. And I think the BBC is genuinely feeling tight at the moment in terms of its finances. It genuinely is feeling that. In terms of the, the ideas, I'll talk about the radio one because that's the most crazy. Absolutely um, insane. 
and I, I spent a lot of time um, on the, the strategy for this. In fact, it was me who devised the strategy for Radio 4 and Radio 5. Okay, we'll sure keep it were, brief, Paul. Uh, okay, I'll give you... <laughs> I won't show the PowerPoint. They are completely different services, uh, serving completely different audiences, uh, doing completely different things. Um, there is no way the BBC could have a live sports service offering, for example, every, you know, every Premier League game if it was on Radio 4. It, you know, Radio 4's schedule would not work anymore. That's one reason, apart from many other so that was a bonkers idea it also won't save very much i mean radio is very cheap you know radio is really cheap it's like 10 minutes of eastenders you know what's the point i also would like to see what would happen if they suddenly put 606 on radio 4 extra <laughs> How would the well that's respond? not such a crazy idea actually <laughs> but you know the, the reason that we're talking about this though is because it's i think i think it's quite clear that adam crozier doesn't listen to five live um, and and so there's there's a you know when this is the problem when you have people that have judgments about what these brands are and what they do uh, I, I imagine the reason that Adam Crozier has, has suggested this is because he feels like Five Live is a talk channel um, and it's you know a, a lot of its stuff is around sport and Radio 4 doesn't do sport and nor, nor should it do sport um, that you know coming, but going back to the BBC3 argument and I'll get on my soapbox about this again where he is correct is is when it comes to BBC3 what's happened there and, and it's kind of a, an argument that's continuing to be successfully swept under the carpet by um by, by the big wigs at bbc they have cut 30 million pounds from services for younger people to invest it into drama and it's my belief that we don't need another 30 million pounds worth of public money invested into drama when you have so much choice with drama across the board including things like Amazon with High Castle and, and what Netflix are doing and you know commissioning their first UK drama um, ITV are a, a big drama supplier as well I'm not necessarily I don't necessarily believe that you need to have the BBC investing another 30 million pounds into that space but what you do need is and I think everybody across the board agrees on this is that there is a lack of services for teenagers particularly British teenagers in the UK and there is some market correction that needs to be done there in addition to market correction there is also a gap in the market that is probably going to be filled by ITV2 and E4 that is only a thing that you know BBC are going to lose out on as a result Talking of uh, telly for younger people uh, Disney have just doubled their stake in Vice Media uh, just as the media group embarks on an expansion into broadcast TV what do you think about those plans for us? It seems to be that people are investing in Vice at the time they're moving away from what has made them successful so, so the things about the, the most interesting thing about Vice for me again to kind of talk about the BBC3 thing is, is that they've actually decided that they do want to be on linear television at a time when we've been hearing an argument for a very long time from the BBC saying young people don't watch linear television anymore so there's obviously something bizarre going on there um, in, in the first instance but I, I do wonder about this how Vice are going to continue their credibility to be the anarchist voice for young people when they've got investment from Murdoch and now investment from Disney. That, to me, suggests that there's going to be a, a significant problem in them convincing young people that they are an authentic rebel voice that they originally were when they first started. But it almost brings us back to the Channel 4 argument in a way, doesn't it, Paul? Because you'd end up possibly with a massive American corporation like Disney buying Channel 4. It would be one of those big companies who would swoop in and buy it. And you do lose distinctiveness when that happens, even if the audience aren't immediately aware of it. Well, I, I think Disney buying Channel 4 is almost uh, so unlikely it's almost not worth discussing, oh, no, but to be honest. Discovery buying but, Channel 4 would not um, be at all ridiculous, would it? Discovery. So, so that's my point. It could be a big company like that. Well, does, it, that does that dilute the vision think, of what you're buying? I don't think it makes sense to say because it's a big company or well, they'll all do the same things. That's, a, that's not a sensible uh, route to go. Um, Discovery could possibly uh, be a, a buyer. 
Um, but I think the, the salient point is that the Disney are professional tyre kickers. Um, and so this may be a bit of tyre kicking. They may then dis- they may then dispose again. But they haven't got any um, executive control at this point. Uh, so it's purely an investment for them. So uh, the issue is going to be whether consumers are aware of the Disney shareholding and whether that alters their perception of the brand. And secondly, whether the management are allowed to continue doing what they do well and, and do that despite the shareholding. Um, if Disney were to take a controlling interest or were to have executives there, it would fundamentally change it because Disney do things the way Disney do it. And you know, I, I know that very, very well. I think this is because Disney want to understand what Vice are about. They think Vice have got some tools they haven't got they want to learn about vice that's what this is about i'm sure it's, it's clear that disney have, uh, are looking to target young men with their acquisition of marvel and their acquisition of star wars they've they've done some interesting moves to kind of branch out from i think they've been very successful with younger girls and and uh, you know frozen is a huge example of that and and that's a uh, a thing that's just kind of taken off and i think actually the disney channel when you look at things like hannah montana and, uh, and high school musical and, and the hits they continue to produce in that space they, it does feel like they skew more female um, but Marvel has been a massive successful acquisition for them in reaching an audience that they never really spoke to previously this could be another one of those but I think there's more question marks about why of what, what does this mean for Vice rather than what does this mean for Disney Disney will do this and it will work for them great if it doesn't work for them who cares um, you know they still got ESPN and, and that will continue and ABC and, and all of these other massive brands but it'll be interesting to know how Vice are going to continue to be this rebel brand that they, they claim to be when you're taking investment like this if they do continue to be a rebel brand it'd be interesting to see what they do to Mickey's Christmas Parade <laughs> I don't know if there'll be a Vice float if the Radio Academy had a Disney parade they would of course base it around their annual Hall of Fame uh, Paul who were joining the ranks this year so we've got uh, Nihal, Victoria Derbyshire and uh, Frank Skinner. So I guess that probably ticks all the buttons very nicely for them. Nihal, Victoria Derbyshire, Frank Skinner. Frank Skinner's not been doing radio very long, has he? I know he's, he is actually, like, ironically, he's the most years. famous in the Hall of Fame, but uh, he's not really a radio guy, is he? You have to, yes. He's, have he's to a stand-up though, comic who's on the well, radio because he can get a television. Remember, why, why are the particular names chosen? It's linked to a luncheon and they have to sell tickets. <laughs> and Frank will sell tickets. I would rather see That's Frank a Skinner. a terribly cynical view, but you know, that is the reality. I would rather see his Coming from someone who is the former chief executive of the Radio Academy. Uh-huh. <laughs> but to be fair to Frank, he, he has, t- he, you know, he he's very good. a very good yeah. breakfast show that. That I, you know that when you, when you look at you know Chris Moles and, and all of those guys and in, in you know attracting that space, he he was the the calling card for Absolute Radio for a little while, wasn't he? So, it's Saturday morning um, show, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And he's done a good job. I mean, he's really adapted to the medium very well. It's very funny, you know, and he loves it. He genuinely loves it. He's very passionate about it. And Nihal, I understand you have a personal connection to for us. <laughs> Nihal, so I used to work with Nihal when I worked at the Asian Programs Unit back in the day. Um, so he DJed my wedding last year. So that's, that's my claim to fame. Amazing. But, um, the, but, a claim to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I know. But what exactly is, what does it mean? What does the Hall of Fame mean? Then? Um, names Minty inducted. charges more to DJ a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can't end this week's show without mentioning Alan Yentob, of course, uh, who has resigned uh, as the BBC's creative director over the kids' company controversy. Let's not go over all that again, but for Az, will you miss him? Uh, well, obviously, Alan Zentos left, and, and the whole of the BBC is now in crisis. No one really knows what it stands for and what it does anymore, um, <laughs> which is obviously not true. Um, uh, I think that well, he's still going to do Imagine. Still going to do Imagine, still going to run BBC films, but not report directly to I, Tony Hall. How's that going to work? 
I think everybody kind of really did scratch their head when it comes to Alan Yentor being a creative director of the BBC and what it actually meant and what he, where his influence was and you know did he did he decide on what the graphics looked like on Strictly Come Dancing? I, I'm not entirely sure you know what his job description was and how it worked. And, Paul's, and I Paul's think not laughing. Paul, are you a Yentob apologist? I it's mean, fine. I, I, Someone I, should defend no, him. No, no. I remember Alan Yentob, you know, meeting Alan Yentob at TV Centre, and I mean, he, he never stayed for the whole meeting. He'd, you know, disappear. He'd come and go. Uh, you know, he wouldn't have his minutes. It was always a shambles. I mean, he'd, you know, make a couple of good comments, and then, you know, it was always. I, I'd never understood what he did, and that was going back to, uh, you know, the nineties. I'm just disappointed that um, Adam Crozier didn't pick up on Alan Yentob and use that. That would be a far more powerful for our argument. purposes. That would be absolutely more far more powerful argument. To say that was a, uh, a bit of a wild. Look, it's saving money, isn't it? Good with talent. Good with talent. That's what they say about Yentob. Before we go, there's just time for our media quiz. This week, it is entitled Mistakes Were Made. In the cut and the thrust of journalism, sometimes a story slips out that needs to be corrected. But why? Why have these publications apologised this week? It's a quick-fire quiz, as ever, so you buzz in with your name. Faraz, you say... Oh, Faraz. Yep, just for us. Without the over. Yeah, and Paul, you say? Paul. Very good, let's go. The winner gets Sports Personality of the Year. The loser is Tyson Fury. Here's question number one. Why did ITV News apologise this week? Buzz when you know the answer. For us. I love this story. It's amazing. So it's, it is amazing. So, so <laughs> ITV did a, uh, a little feature on Lenny Henry and his uh, amazing work in diversity and television. Sir and, Lenny Henry. Uh, Sir Lenny Henry. Sorry, yes. my apologies. As, as um, the point was being made. Uh, and, his he des- and they decided to uh, show all of the good work he did by playing a clip of him dancing with the Maracas. Unfortunately, it wasn't him. It was actually Ainsley Harriet from Ready, Steady, Cook. Innocent mistake, I I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they haven't said, have they? They've apologised. They haven't said how the mistake happened. In fairness, and it still ultimately comes down to the fact that someone thought two black men looked the same. But in fairness, it was a clip of Ainsley Harriet at the comedy store. It wasn't Ainsley Harriet cooking. So it was, it, you it's can see that. It's an amazing clip. So, so it is an amazing clip. Someone obviously filed it incorrectly in the archive, but then no one seemed to notice until after it was far too late. And Paul, my favourite moment of this was the screen grab that someone on Twitter did of when ITV Plus One played out the news at 10. Uh, and they flashed up that little warning saying we're unable to bring this to your region at the moment. They're obviously highly embarrassed very quickly. Well, they should be. I mean, it's ridiculous. Here's question number two. Why has the sun said soz this week? Paul. Paul. So this is um, a reporter who allegedly travelled from Turkey to Paris without actually showing his passport once. Big headline uh, story on the Sun yeah, Saturday, yeah. Yeah, and apparently it was untrue. Um, he showed his passport at least once, or at least twice apparently, in Croatia, getting in and out of Zagreb. We could attack the Sun for you know not properly checking this story out. They were running a big front page story saying our journalist, our guy, travels across the route that many refugees have done and look, he doesn't have his passport checked twice. But for us, this was a freelance journalist. They presumably believed that he was putting his own reputation on the line by saying this had happened. I mean, in, as much as anything, the, the guy, uh, Emil Gessen, this was sort of his fault, wasn't it, for claiming that he'd done this thing. Yes, he got his big scoop, but then now he looks stupid, doesn't he? looks like he tried to con the paper. No one cares about who the reporter is when you're a reader of the Sun, do you? You just care about the headline, and the fact that you put something like that on the front page of the paper without doing your appropriate checks and balances about if the story's true is scandalous. I mean, it's like, if, if the BBC or it did something like that, Sky would have them for breakfast. It's, it's just completely inappropriate, and I don't understand, you know, why the Red Top Press continue to be able to, not just the Red Top Press, but why the press in general continue to be able to get away with this. It's, it's you know, they've, they're putting... It's called lack of regulation, or lack it, of really uh, regulation with teeth. 
it's 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 deeply. I mean, I you know, obviously, you know, as somebody from from a, um, a Muslim background, and um, you know, it's it's deeply offensive when you have these things like you know, one in five Muslims ag- agree with ISIS, and and now you know, you can be a Syrian refugee and get across the borders without any problems whatsoever. It just it's, it's not helpful in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't do anything to the debate, and it particularly causes even more problems when it's just simply untrue. Which which is fine, and I accept your point. But what about my point? The journalist who actually said that he'd done this and obviously hadn't. That was a, a long-term error for him, wasn't it? I mean, you know, the Sun aren't going to employ him again. Yeah, but the Sun aren't going to employ him again. They're still going to sell papers next week. It, that's that. You know, it doesn't. It, to me, if I'm honest, it doesn't really matter about the journalists. When we've had the, you know, the phone hacking scandal and people have continued to do wrongdoing, it's the paper, it's the Sun that continue to make money out of these stories. They're the one that have the influence and they're the ones that profit at the end of the day. So, or, did the Sun know, or did the Sun fail to check? Did the Sun care? Uh, well, we don't know. I mean, that's the question I'm asking. I mean, this guy presumably claimed he'd actually done this uh, to get the story and to get the piece. The question is, why did the Sun not check? Although it still didn't match Tom Latcham's uh, rifling through Adele's attic uh, scoop, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it, did you see it? Made it into the Sun on Sunday. Know, yeah, 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 yeah. After it was revealed that, exclusively media on the media podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the scoop. Yeah, that she had a guitar when she was a child. Uh, right. Well, here is the tiebreaker. Question number three: Who is BuzzFeed refusing to say sorry to after calling them quote a mendacious racist? Baraz, I guess it has to be Donald Trump. It is. Faraz, congratulations. Why would they need to apologise for that? BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief had sent round a memo to all the staff this week saying that calling Trump a mendacious racist on their social media wasn't opinion, but a matter of fact. Look, I, I don't think Donald Trump cares, uh, and I don't think any, you know, I'd be, <laughs> I don't think it matters to anybody. I think that his his outlandish comments continue to gain press, and they continue to create debate, and that's why we're having massive petitions. And you know, Katie Hopkins today said something outrageous, like twenty five percent of the UK population agrees with Donald Trump, and it's it's just it continues to be nonsense. But but the you know Trump's campaign is. I don't want to call it clever because that kind of makes it more than it actually is. But it's clear that what he's doing is every time his polls slip, he puts out something outrageous to get him on, on Fox and Friends again. Well, here at the Media Podcast, we are always fair and balanced. And the audience can transparently hear for us that you are today's winner. Congratulations. Oh, yeah, it's a quiz. Amazing. You trumped it. Uh, my thanks to Faraz Osman and to Paul Robinson. Remember, you can subscribe to this programme on your phone and then it'll download as soon as it's ready via the magic of podcasting. Just visit themediapodcast.com and find out how. Uh, today's episode is dedicated to these fine, upstanding citizens. Adam Bowie, John Collins, Stephen Taylor and Simon Woods. In years to come, songs shall be written about them because they are like gods. Similarly, these wonderful people should be lauded for setting up recurring payments, which allows us to plan shows not just in a fortnight, but forever. Massive thanks to HOD, Mr F.A. Casella, Louis Ismail, Alison Ross and Joanna Card. And to Edmund Baker, who asks us to check out the Neon Saints Brass Band, a funky hip-hop brass onslaught from Brighton, UK. Debut album out now. Check out Neon Saints Brass Band wherever you get your tunes. Uh, to join these swelling ranks and keep us on the air, please go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Give us some money. Keep us on air. It takes one minute. Do it now. Uh, thanks very much. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer was Matt Hill. And the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Till next time, bye-bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
presents the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.